Comrades, it's episode 65 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. And to, we're gonna we're gonna be kicking off the TMK book club right now. Um, as as we've talked about before, and as I've like posted on Twitter and in the Discord, but just a little refresher, right? We're we're gonna be like every other week from now on, working our way chapter by chapter through Langdon Winners. Uh, foundational text on techno-politics, autonomous technology, technics out of control as a theme in political thought. Uh, you can find a PDF of it for free online. That uh, link will be in the episode description. We wanted to do these kind of TMK book clubs, uh, and we've you know we've got we've got a channel on the Discord, the book club channel on the Discord. People are always constantly sharing great resources, talking about what they're reading, what they're thinking about. But we wanted to like kind of formalize uh, a, a book club, and like it's just a good excuse to kind of like work our way through some of these bigger bigger texts. You know, maybe a little bit denser, a little hard. Um, something that's like really nice to just like discuss discuss it with people and have a little bit of a guide and you know winner's book is like so influential on the tmk ethos uh influential on my own work personally i go back to this book again and again and always find something new and interesting in it uh it you know it was originally published in in like 77 1977 speaking in part to just like how well thought out it is, it's still super relevant and prescient, but also I think speaking as, as well and something we keep in mind as we'll, you know, discuss through the book is just like how little has really changed <laughs> in our, in our discourse, in our politics, uh, and yeah, in our language, uh, around technology and, and society and the political economy thereof. Yeah. And also, you know, as he points out, there's still it feels like the same core problem that he point that he mentions in that introduction, saying that we all recognize uh, either through experience or through discourse the importance of technology, but still our analyses of it and its political and social dimensions are like incredibly limited and. Uh, and a lot of times ignorant of you know economics, economic history, geopolitics, you know all sorts of larger paradigms, frameworks, uh, trends, uh, you know phenomenon. And instead, we still to this day think that the way to answer the question about like technology and what role it should play in our societies to treat society is to treat technology as like this unique ahistorical force. And 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 engage with it as it appears to us, and not like how it got to that point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I tweeted out recently, in part while reading this book, and in part while seeing some other stuff, you know, some other articles and essays or whatever. But I tweeted out recently that like socio-technical analysis seems to like every few years rediscover power, right? And people are like. Yo, have you heard of this thing called power? Like, why is nobody <laughs> talking about this shit? It seems really important. We should do something about this. And then, like, the fad dies down. People forget about it again. They go back and do other stuff. And then, like, 
a few years later, someone else comes along and is like, yo, have you heard of this thing called power? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like this constant, like infinite recursion of the same. Is that a subtweet? Well, you guys will never know. Unless you pay, <laughs> unless you pay five hundred dollars on the Patreon, those people get to know. <laughs> <laughs> we here at TMK have always talked about power. That fad will never die down. <laughs> and uh, Winner, I think, is a really great resource for 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 thinking about power, thinking about technology in this way. So for this episode, like we're going to just kind of discuss our way through the introduction in chapter one. The plan is not to just kind of go and do a, a really deep exegesis of the chapters, you know, going through it point by point. Like, you know, it'll be really helpful if you read along with us, but it's also not required. You'll get the gist of it as we kind of like talk about what we liked, what what reading the chapters made us think. I think before we get into the intro in chapter one, though, it would be helpful. I can provide a little bit of background on Winner, um, where he's coming from with this, uh, like the way that the book is written, you know, things that will kind of help orient how to read and understand the larger context around this time period. So like, like I said, like the, the book was written in, in the seventies and, and winner is a, you know, he's a political theorist. He's a political philosopher. So he's kind of coming at it with that idea in mind, you know, studying technology, really deeply knowledgeable of the history of technology, the social aspects of technology, you know, actual technical developments at the time where, you know, trends and trajectories and so on. But at the end of the day, he is a political theorist and his interest is also in the kind of like history of ideas. The The book is written in this like, in this way that he draws on so many sources and such a like wide eclectic range of sources. I don't know if you noticed that while you guys were reading um, but like he's pulling quotes from from all over the place, you know, from the ancient Greeks to, uh, you know, Francis Bacon and Newton up to, you know, uh, little known at the time historians, poets, right? He Literature and poetry, Ginsburg, um, you know, there's a whole section like at the end of the book that is all about Frankenstein. You know, he does this like deep reading of Frankenstein it's wild it's also wild to think that like i think this book came out when winner was in his like mid 30s right but also this was at a time like pre-internet so it's like hard to imagine being able to write a book like this now because my man just had to sit in the library for years you know just like just just cruising around the stacks pulling random books off sitting there reading them taking notes going off and finding other stuff, right? Like there, there is no, there is no internet to, uh, to assist with the research, which just makes it even more impressive. I could not do serious research <laughs> before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that interdisciplinary approach really soups up the argument, right? In that he's not also making the mistakes of a lot of analysts of TAC, as he points out, you know, pretty early on in the text who want to focus entirely on one or two domains, right? You know, like social scientists or managers, he writes, you know, will specifically think about how the main problem with tech is that, you know, it's dealing with a increasingly complex, changing society. And so technical developments are the the problem with technical developments is that they're outpacing the, you know, the ability of individuals or social systems to adapt, right? And then other people, natural social scientists, right? Their concerns are going to be dismissed. And then there are other schools of critics who may be thinking that, okay, well, the real problem is what is this going to do to the soul of man? Instead of like the a comprehensive analysis that he proposes, what technology is able to do and why it's able to do it at each level of society. Yeah, I, I like I like bringing that in because he does kind of, you know, he's sympathetic to these critiques of, uh, of people like Jacques Ellul, right? This like French... Uh, philosopher and theorist who wrote a a really well-known book called The Technological Society. Um, 
or people like Marcuse, right? Like a lot of the kind of thinkers at this time that, as you said, Ed, were like really focusing on the, the yeah, this, this question of the soul of man, right? How is technology changing the soul? And, and there's a lot of echoes here with that like humanist critique uh, that we see with like Zuboff, right? Like that school of thought. Or um, the romantic critique, right? That technology yeah. takes us away from what it means to be human. Exactly. As if there's some kind of like unchanging human nature and technology is attacking it in some way. It also makes me think as well, like, you know, going back to our episode with Salome Villun, uh, where she kind of lays out these critiques of, of data governance and in particular that, that dignitarian critique that she calls it, right? Where the main harm of data um, is how it harms our individual dignity, right? So it, it, it ends up having this kind of, yeah, like you said, a romantic view, uh, this like, you know, overly humanistic view, uh, focusing, you know, very individualistic as well, um, and not kind of considering these broader systems and regimes of governance and, you know, ideologies and, and all of that kind of stuff that actually, you know, brings us to a much larger scale of analysis. And also a scale of analysis that is not like defeatist. I thought it was one of the things that surprised me was like also very early on in the intro, bringing in the slogan of the Black Panther Party, the spirit of the mm -hmm. people's greater than man's technology to help drive home the point that, you know, I mean, if you just step back and think about it, a revolutionary group of people are emphasizing something that even like the most advanced critics or radical critics in Europe and North America were unwilling to really say was a surety, right? They were they were actually deeply worried and, and convinced even in some cases that machinery and technology were things that were never going to be overcome or that were uh, um, forces that were as you said, attacking human nature in such a way that there's no, we can't go back, right? Instead of stepping back and asking, okay, like, well, how are we defining technology as he tries to, you know, later on? What, when we say technology, are we both like thinking of the same thing? Or am I referring to certain devices and you're referring to any technical system? You know, how are these things developed? Why were they developed? And what, whether or not they're actually novel technical things or just like outgrowths of an existing system. Yeah, it gets to this question that is, you know, the the title of chapter one, which is autonomy and mastery, right? Like this dialectical relationship of who or what has autonomy and who or what has mastery. In, in, in looking at that, you know, in, in many ways, he's trying to flip the script on us, right? Where it's like, I think a lot of the the humanistic critiques of technology give a lot of mastery over to technology, right? The the threat here is on human autonomy. The autonomy of technology is threatening the autonomy of people and the master becomes the slave, right? We create technology as a form of a mechanical slave but then the threat is that the slave becomes the master, right? It's this Hegelian dialectic, as he points out. I like the quote that he uses at the beginning of that chapter. It's a quote from uh, Paul Valery, and it's a uh, quote, so the whole question comes down to this. Can the human mind master what the human mind has made? I find that really kind of apropos because that's essentially what we're looking at right now is like useless technology is being used to make mundane daily tasks gamified and create jobs that aren't really jobs. You know, we really didn't have a use for this in the first place. You know, thinking with like Uber and Airbnb is an example of one of those same things. I don't know. It's almost Nostradamus like that he could foresee, you know, some of the shit now way back then. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's just his prescience and also just how little things have changed, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yo, he talks, I, I, that's a really great point. And it brings in like 
you know, like David Graeber's critiques of like bullshit jobs and stuff like that as well, right? The kinds of things that are meant to just kind of like, you know, it's a, like oppressive busy work, right? It's meant to just kind of like keep you keep you grinding, uh, keep the machines grinding on you, uh, you know, so that you feel like you don't have this mastery or this autonomy over this system. I, I love that he brings in that Black Panther Party slogan that Ed mentioned, right? The spirit of the people is greater than the man's technology. And and then uh, Winner goes on to say, quote, you know, this slogan expresses the conviction that someday the system of domination will be overcome, a testable hypothesis somewhat different from those social scientists currently ponder. And he's constantly taking these like pot shots at, at social scientists and the state of social science, right? Like bringing in this, uh, like the fact value distinction, right? Where it's like social scientists, you know, they, they just want to, they just want to look at technology and say like, you know, I have demonstrated how technology X has caused social effect Y and the meaning of that. That's not my, that's not my department. Right. right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just giving you the it is dragnet, right? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. No values. <laughs> I think also another interesting pot shot, right, that he takes at social scientists is in the way that the word technology appears. And, you know, he writes about how, you know, people who usually when they spoke about technology in the past might have been start speaking about a practical art or the study of practical arts or practical arts collectively. And that's what it meant in the literature of the 18th and the 19th centuries, right? But it's only in the 20th century that it begins to shift and it expands into uh, something analogous to how we use it now, right? Speaking about tools, instruments, machines, organizations, methods, techniques, systems, the totality of all these and similar things in our experience. And so that shift, he you know, starts talking about how that shift ends up meaning that social scientists you know, get uncomfortable with uh, thinking about how technology might actually be or whether or not technologies are, go beyond those simple things and are things that alter you know, your mental state or spiritual state, right? You know, or whether it's a technical system that can that comes out of a cultural object, right, a cultural out of artifact, and social scientists say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, that's not what we're talking about here, right? And in going mm-hmm. back to that facts and values argument, I think it builds on it, where you know the social scientists are insisting that it has to be a very specific thing. You know, he he goes on and talks about how, or you know, one. One piece I'll quote from here is, from their point of view, if this is not done, we will surely find ourselves in the position of Jacques Elou, who defines his central concept, la technique, as the totality of methods rationally arrived at and having absolute efficiency for a given stage of development in every field of activity. Such a definition, Elou's critics complain, is overly broad and does not approach the meaning of our word technology. I disagree. While Elu's addition of absolute efficiency may cause us difficulties, his notion of technique as the totality of rational methods closely corresponds to the t- term technology as now used in everyday English. Elu's la technique and our technology both point to a vast, diverse, ubiquitous totality that stands at the center of modern culture. Both include a substantial portion of what we make and what we do. Or the way he frames it, it sounds like he's trying to say this, isn't, this should not be a profound realization. But it is because the social scientists have kind of dominated the conception of how technology is and will and, and react very viciously or violently, it seems, if you insist that it may be something that's just so core to culture, so core to politics, so core to social interactions or, and society itself, that it's not strictly mechanistic things, right? I mean, this also speaks to, and we'll see it in in later chapters, you know, chapter one, he does it, chapter two, like later chapters where he he goes like really in depth on the thought of some particular, uh, you know, scholar or thinker or person or scientist or whatever uh, as a way of kind of like pulling out, you know, this person, their work is representative of a dominant idea, right? So like, you know, he goes really in on uh, this like exegesis of Jacques Ellul in, you know, in chapter one. I'm thinking as well before I I forget, you know, one of the things I really like as well about Winner, like his style, the book is like, you know, it's dense. Can't lie. It's dense. There's a, there's a lot going on, but at the same time, he is a good and clear writer and he's snarky as hell Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, 
We, there's we a... love a petty motherfucker. We love that shit. Oh, man. <laughs> boy, is he, is he petty and snarky. <laughs> there's a section on, on, on uh, page seven where he, you know, is talking about that fact value distinction. And he says, you know, but in almost every book or article on the subject, the discussion stalls on the same sterile conclusion. We have demonstrated the relationship between technology X and social changes A, B, and C. Obviously, technology X has implications for astounding good or evil. It is now up to mankind to decide which the case will be. And then he goes on, poor mankind, <laughs> although freshly equipped with the best findings of social science, it is still left holding the bag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's just fucking like, this is the original fucking, um, you know, technology is a land of contrast. Who can say whether it's good or bad? Right. On the one hand, technology kills millions of people every day. And on the other hand, it makes sure that we get to work on time so who, who can say if it's good or bad that <laughs> yeah it's up to it's up to poor mankind <laughs> to figure that one out yeah, not me <laughs> not me even though i'm clearly making an argument, <laughs> my argument. Right, another right. thing i think that he does well pointing out when people are like do the bullshit where they're like i'm not making an argument i'm just pointing the facts and it's like you're making an you're leaving certain things in and out. You're making an argument. You're making value judgments and you're insisting and you're doing an argument where you're insisting that your value judgments are objective statements, right? That they're not prescriptive, they're normative. And going on that, a section that really like stood out to me because it's an argument that I know I've had, uh, Ed's had, I'm sure Jeremy's had, like it's just an argument that constantly replays itself. And it's on, um, I'm going to read two paragraphs here from Winner on page 10 and 11, where he says, one consequence of this state of affairs is that discussion of the political implications of advanced technology have a tendency to slide into a polarity of good versus evil. Because there is no middle ground for talking about such things, statements often end up being expressions of total affirmation or total denial. One either hates technology or loves it. In my own attempts to speak with scientists, engineers, and managers over the years, I have again and again run into responses that refuse to tolerate any ambiguity on this cherished threadbare dichotomy. I have tried to point out that America has far for too long substituted technical solutions for problems that were either political or moral in nature. I have suggested that there might be some desirable alternatives to the ways in which we now employ various kinds of technology. For example, other ways of structuring the use of television than our present nationwide corporate-owned networks. As innocuous as these views are, they are often taken as a threat. Any criticism of socio-technical practice could only be vile opposition. You're just using technology as a whipping boy, the response comes back. You just want to stop progress and send us back to the Middle Ages with peasants dancing on the green. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly what I want. <laughs> I mean, and this is the response. I want everyone to shit that, in like, the corner, you know, shit in the brush. Live in That's one right. room, yeah, eat from a hearth or a hearth, and and drink slop, and and put out and make sure alcohol is in everything because the water is not clean enough to drink. That's the kind of world that I want. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck, fuck, white boy summer. I want peasants on the green summer. Yeah, I want, I want, I want typhoid summer. <laughs> <laughs> we're bringing it back baby we're bringing back all the fucking diseases that you thought were cured right? okay that's what it that's the luddite promise you signed up for that. i was gonna yeah i was about to say like this is the exact fucking same thing that we see with the way that like luddism is used as this like derogatory word right where it's like and it is exactly that right you you try to pose any kind of critique and it's a, you're immediately come back with, you just fucking hate technology. You're a primitivist. Oh, you did want, you post that from you your wanna... iPhone? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I'm very smart. <laughs> oh, we live in a society. How interesting. <laughs> and then it, Winner goes on to say, 
in another just fucking like prescient remark, right? How the same thing, you know, infinite recursion of the same, right? Winner goes on to say a typical response of engineers, for example, is to announce that they are merely problem solvers. Tell us the problem they demand. We will find a solution. That's our job. But you may not presume to question the nature of our solution. You are not a member of the technical profession and therefore know nothing of relevance. If you insist on raising questions about the appropriateness of the means we devise, we can only conclude that you are anti-technology. That's right, Bambi. That's right. That's right, baby. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> but of course, right, like, you know, uh, we joke, but we're not anti-technology. We're anti-capitalist and we're anti-capitalist technologies and capitalist innovations. But any of those distinctions, as Winner pointed out, you know, 50, 60 years ago, right? Like, we're still arguing over these distinctions, which makes me think that, like, you know, on one hand, it's just a, a, a systemic and perpetual ignorance. But on the other hand, there's a bad faith element to it as well, right? Like the inability to understand these distinctions, as Winner points out, the inability to look beyond these uh, Manchian dichotomies of good versus evil, pro technology or anti technology progress or primitivism right the, the 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 seeming inability to look past these distinctions is there's a bad faith element to it as well right they are willfully uh ignorant or play ignorant about this in fact i would say most of the people who advance these pro-technology arguments are the real anti-technologists right because they're the ones that are advocating for increasingly narrow and selective applications of techniques into in ways that don't actually uh, prioritize expanding human welfare or social development or pro possibilities for flourishing right they're all, they're mainly concerned with self-perpetuation and capital accumulation and all these other outcomes that they say oh no that will lead you know to the flourishing of humanity and humankind but it doesn't as we know right i feel like we are the ones who actually do believe in the capacity to deploy technology in situations to, to, to expand the realm of human freedom, right? And to increase human autonomy and to liberate people from drudgery of work and a burden of like undesirable labor. But we're not, we're not given that chance. And, and, and it, I think it's a huge disservice that anyone who advocates for more better vision is told that they're an anti-technologist. You don't know you're the fucking anti-technologist, you know? You think that the way it should be used is just to like, what, you know, like we were talking about in our episode with um, uh, Chuang, you know? These are the people who believe. The real anti-technologists are the people, I think, who are like, you know, in Maton, going like, oh, we built this incredible thing that, that turns our workers into slaves. Not, you know, not the people are saying, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right, Ed, right? Like, and I think this, this is something, this is a really important point that I think, you know, will be a theme throughout the book as well, right? Is that like, no, we actually hold a greater uh, understanding of the promise of technology, right? It's, it's one that is not constrained to it being, only a, a master-slave dialectic, um, one that is only constrained to being, uh, you know, some people are dominated while some people are liberated, right? Like, you know, it is exactly how we ended the last episode on talking about Chuang and talking about the Chinese platform capitalism and, and gig economy and stuff, right? That's like, it's not that question of uh, it could be worse, so why are you complaining? It's no, it should uh -huh. be better uh -huh. for everyone. Uh -huh. So we need to be complaining. Right, exactly. It should be, and we know it can be. We know it can be, right? This is not the end all be all. This is not the best possible situation. It's not even one of the top. It's one of the worst. It's one of the absolute fucking worst, right? So, yeah, we, we're going to complain because we also want everybody to have typhoid in the summer. That's important. Don't lose sight of that. And, and and the technology also, like, uh, you know, going on this idea of autonomous technology, right? The the idea that technology somehow is an autonomous force, is a, is a self-mover uh, of history, an agent of change in history, right? 
we'll get into it in chapter two in a couple of weeks where he starts talking more about these different ideas of, of technological change, you know, determinism, drift, uh, evolution, right? But before we get into all that, because that's two weeks away, uh, you know, it is important to understand that the way in which um, people marshal this idea of autonomous technology is also a really uh, useful way to avoid any kind of guilt or responsibility or obligation that comes along with inventing, creating, using these technologies. You know, at risk of um, activating Godwin's law here, mm. <laughs> um, you know, he does on chapter or on page 15, he has a really uh, telling quote from the memoirs of Albert Speer, who was Hitler's minister of armaments and war production. You know, Albert Speer was the literally the architect of the Third Reich, right? Of the Third Reich, in the sense that he, you know, he was an architect and he was conceiving of this big monolithic architecture um, and modes of production. And in this winner quotes from Albert Speer's memoirs, where he's talking about how, uh, you know, Albert Speer found it possible to uh, hold up runaway technology as a partial excuse for the barbarism of the Nazi regime. Speer says, quote, the criminal events of those years were not only an outgrowth of Hitler's personality. The extent of the crimes was also due to the fact that Hitler was the first to be able to employ the implements of technology to multiply crime. He goes on to say, and this is from uh, Spears' testimony at the Nuremberg trials, quote, the more technological the world becomes, the greater is the danger. As the former minister in charge of a highly developed armaments economy, it is my last duty to state a new great war will end with the destruction of human culture and civilization. There is nothing to stop unleashed technology and science from completing its work of destroying man, which it has so terribly begun in this war. So there you go, putting all of the blame on uh, the unleashed technology, on the idea that it was only because these technologies uh, existed. That, that, was the, that was where true evil emanated from. Not the people that made the technologies, not the people that used the technologies, not the, the material conditions or the political economy or the social structures or the racism or the bigotry or the whatever, whatever, whatever. No, it was the unleashed uh, might of autonomous technology that did it. And it's and it also phrases it, that sort of belief also frames it in such a way where it's gonna happen again. You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, even when that's not happening. As long as there's some massive conflict that's using new technologies and new weapons of war, well shit, you know, technology is about to destroy us. And it's on the way to destroy us always because that's the nature of it. Right. I mean, it goes back to this question, the epigraph that Jeremy quoted, right? Like, can the human mind master what the human mind has made? But that second part seems to get erased in a lot of the discussion around autonomous technology, that the human mind has made it, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Instead, it becomes, we only focus on that first part. Can the human mind master this thing as if it's, as if, as if it's something alien, right? Right. right. Uh, yeah, it's this alien power, right? It goes back to what we talked about with like the labor processes of the Amazon warehouse as well, right? It, and, the, and the way that Marx talks about uh, industrial machinery and factories and organization and capital, um, right? Where it presents itself as an alien power. And I think then in this part, it's also useful. I think it would be useful also for people um, to, for us to talk also through, you know, London winners sort of definitions, I think, or distinctions that he's going to use for it in the tech, in the writing, right, that come at the end of that introduction um, that I found were also really helpful. Winner writes, first, I want to note the class of objects we normally refer to as technological tools, instruments, machines, appliances, weapons, gadgets, which are used in accomplishing a wide variety of tasks. And speaking of objects of this sort, I shall employ the term apparatus. 
For many persons, technology actually means apparatus, that is, the physical devices of technical performance. I also want to mark the whole body of technical activities, skills, methods, procedures, routines, that people engage in to accomplish tasks and include such activities under the rubric technique. The root of this word is Greek techni, art, craft, or skill, which linguists have further traced to the Indo-European root text, to weave or fabricate. From the earliest times, technique has been distinguished from other modes of human action by its purposive, rational, step-by-step way of doing things. In addition, technology frequently refers to some, but not all, varieties of social organization, factories, workshops, bureaucracies, armies, research, and development teams, and the like. For my uses here, the term organization will signify all varieties of technical, rational, productive, social arrangements. Another closely related term, network, will mark those large-scale systems that combine people and apparatus linked across great distances. And then, you know, he goes on and says, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a lexicographer, I do not wish to legislate usage. These distinctions represent a modest attempt to bring a measure of order to a conversation that has lacked order so far, and I think still does, you know, um, and, and attempt to, uh, an attempt the rest of the uh, book will make. I mean, I think also, like, those flaws, those distinctions are still not made in a lot of the discussion. I mean, even, you know, I fall into that sometimes, where it's like, you know, I say technology, technical system, well, what I really mean in some instances, a technique or an apparatus or or an organization. And that, the word technology, you know, I was talking a few times with, you know, Sam Harden, he's a really good reporter, um, you know, that covers uh, the gig economy specifically. And he's not even convinced that like there should be uh, a technology desk, you know, in news organizations and media organizations, because when they speak about it, I think they're also making, you know, technology ends up just being this massive umbrella term on the verge of being useless, right? And similarly here, when we speak, when most people speak about technology, they're referring, they really mean other things. And because they're not distinguishing those other things, it gets very muddled very quick. And that allows people to say nonsense, like uh, technology has a nature or a mind of its own, or that we'll never be able to master, you know, things that like should not be very controversial points to critique, but are because of how messy our discussion of tech has been. And we see the material consequences of that messiness as well. Like I'm thinking as well, you know, just going to show how much of, uh, you know, our own analysis and ethos is influenced by the groundwork winner laid. Like I'm thinking of uh, our episodes on the conceptual hit list, right? I think it's uh, episode 32 and 33. If y'all want to go back on that, uh, where we go through, you know, and, and, mark for death a number of uh, concepts like innovation, um, you know, and, and we talk about that distinction, that historical shift in the way of the way that the definition of technology has changed from, yeah, being, you know, of the practical arts of, you know, something, you know, uh, mechanical or artisanal in nature to being something shiny and engineering and alien in nature. But you're exactly right to point out that part in Winner, right in those conceptual hit list uh, episodes, one of the things we took aim at was the very concept of the technology company. You know, a lot of these so-called technology companies are, are not technology yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's no technology mm-hmm. or very little technology or, or at least certainly nothing like innovative um, going on there. Instead, the, they call themselves technology companies as a way to, uh, you know, quote unquote, disrupt other sectors, um, to do regulatory arbitrage, to avoid all of the scrutiny and, and supervision and regulation that comes along with what they are actually doing, which is, you know, doing finance or doing taxis or doing accommodation or whatever, right? Like, but because they call themselves technology companies, all of a sudden, any order in our thinking on this just becomes disorderly. It becomes muddled. Consistently, right? And that's and that's where we are at this point, right? right? That muddled thinking allows these things to become, to gain a life of their own. You know, it shouldn't be that so many of the companies that call themselves tech companies exist, but because of how magical that world is, word is and because of how, like you said, how messy it is, you know, you can have a company that is a taxi company um, uh, simply 
do nothing more than uh, figure out a smart way to exploit its workers and get a $120 billion private valuation um, when it's not in any fucking universe. <laughs> you know, work that That's how you get companies lying. I mean, like, I think this is also good because autonomous technology has grown and grown and grown and grown in discussion and fanaticism since this book came out. We have drones. We have artificial intelligence. That's not really artificial intelligence, right? We have um, border walls like through Anduril that are not really autonomous border walls. We have uh, uh, self-driving vehicles that are not really self-driving vehicles. And yet, and yet people still refer to them as such and pretend that the category is real because of how muddled discussion of tech is, right? Where you can have a lift just lie for 10 years saying that it's going to make autonomous vehicles, right? And say that <laughs> the reason it's going to make autonomous vehicles is because technology is magical and all this bullshit, you know, and it's and it and ignore the reality of it and also not be called out on that. Not be called out on the fact that it is very obvious they're not going to do level one, two, three, or four autonomous vehicles because everyone just believes that technology is some magical thing and they'll figure out a way to do it eventually because it's technology, right? Because mm-hmm. it has an inherent... And lo, and lo and behold, what did Lyft just do? It sold its autonomous vehicle division to Toyota, right? It, it got out the game the same way that Uber just recently did as well, right? Like, you know, they spend so much money, money that should be and could be going elsewhere for much better things, right? right. Give me part of that money, <laughs> give Ed part of that money, and give Jeremy part of that money, and we'd be in a fucking much better world, I guarantee your ass, <laughs> you know? Uh, Winner goes on to say, technology is a word whose time has come. We are now faced with an odd situation in which one observer after another discovers, and doing air quotes, discovers right. technology and announces it to the world as something new. The fact is, of course, that there is nothing novel about technics, technological change, or advanced technological societies. One can argue that medieval Europe was a highly sophisticated technological society of a certain sort, involved in a fairly rapid continuing process of socio-technical change. One does not have to wait for the Industrial Revolution or the so-called post-industrial period of the 20th century to see political societies remolded in response to technical innovation. I like this this calling out, right, of being like that ain't new. Technological change has been happening, right? Like we can we can ask questions about the speed of that change and I think those are more productive questions to ask, but that doesn't also mean that there's some like internal engine in technology um, as this, yeah, this like magical mystifying word um, that drives it forward, that somehow technology has put the pedal to its own metal. This is something we learn so much by just looking at the history of technology is that so much of what's presented to us as new is not really that new. So much of what's presented to us as a uh, you know, autonomous change or unprecedented change is is neither autonomous nor unprecedented. Um, but as we often say on TMK as well, right, like, the, you know, a lot of this has just become ahistorical. It's become ahistoricized and apoliticized as well, which, again, just muddies our thinking on these questions of, you know, autonomy and mastery, for just example, to go, you know, go back to chapter one. You know, in chapter one, also, there's another interesting, uh, there's another interesting part that he kind of, you know, builds on that, um, you know, also was helpfully highlighted by whoever had this um PDF, um, <laughs> you know, also thinking through autonomous technology, right? So in the present discussion, the term autonomous technology is understood to be a general label for all conceptions and observations to the effect that technology is somehow out of control by human agency. My use of this notion stems most directly from Jacques Ellul's autonomous technique. According to Ellul, technique has become autonomous. It has fashioned an omnivorous world which obeys its own laws and which has renounced all tradition. The theories I will uh, examine here all maintain, in one way or another, that far from being controlled by desired and rational ends of human beings, technology in a real sense now governs its own course, speed, and destination. 
you know, this is interesting because also, like, you know, I think as if that were to be, if that were true, if it were true that technology were governing itself, right, that would be a problem. But is that true? It's, mm. it's not. And there would be things that you would need to prove that it is true. And 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 as we see, and as we go, and as we'll go through the book, and you know, and I think unveil, I think what Winner makes a pretty convincing case is that the things that you would need to prove it are not there because. What people think they're arguing is not actually what they're not. They're not arguing real things, or they're not arguing and interacting with reality to make concrete arguments. They're out, out, operating off of the delusions and misconceptions and um, shallow conceptions of what a tech, technical system is, and then saying, "Well, you know, this, that, and the third, because I've made technology such a broad term." All of these things are controlling human beings. And it's like, yeah, of course, if you think that massive social organizations are technologies, and if you think that every single human uh, activity is a technology, and if you think that every single physical instrument is a technology, then yeah, it's understandable how looking at all that, you would say technology is ruling us. Now, in chapter one, he quotes, this is on page 18, he quotes from uh, a book called Pentagon Capitalism by this industrial engineer named Seymour Melman, who, you know, in this book criticizes this, this notion of autonomous military technology. Again, you know, I, I've, I, you know we'll, 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 we'll harp on this uh, again and again that, you know, this book, when Winner's book came out in the mid 70s, right? Like, Pentagon uh, capitalism came out even earlier than that, right? But it's raising many of these same exact questions that, you know, are inescapable for us today. Seymour Melman says in his book, quote, I am uneasy about theories viewing man as the captive of his weapons. This is a self-defeating mode of understanding, rather different from identifying the top decision makers and their mode of control. Men may be captives, but only of other men. The concept of man in the grip of a, of a Frankenstein weapon system has a severely limiting effect on our own ability to do anything about it if that is desired. And I think that, I mean, that that is such an important point there that sums up so much of this, right? Uh, that idea... You know, and and I should say as well, right? Like, you know, there, there's definitely some uh, anachronisms in language here. Talking about, you know, using the the word, you know, man has done this, or you know, men are captive of other men, right? Like, yeah, you know, we we do have to understand there's a there's some language linguistic anachronisms here, and we definitely you know mean people uh, in, in those regards, right? All people, but but the idea here. Uh, is yeah that that question of not not how has technology captured us but how have people captured us what who are the who are those top decision makers what are their modes of control these are these are the crucial questions when we start asking you know uh, uh, anal- when we start doing analysis of autonomy uh, of uh, expertise of mastery of domination of power you know is winner still doing interviews because i would be curious what he also thinks about discussions of autonomy today and whether or not they've progressed to a useful state or if he sees anything that's interesting that has progressed to a useful state or whether it's still falling for the same sort of traps he outlined i don't know that's a good question i've i Winner produced a lot of really great work, you know, starting with this book all the way up through the 90s. Like, I, I've, I've read, like, you know, he's got another book that came out in the 80s that's like a much more uh, trade book. It's called The Well and the Reactor. And it's written in a much more, like, popular style, you know, for a general audience. And, and it is good. And there's a lot of really great concepts in that book as well. He has a whole chapter in that book called Myth Information, which is just basically like a progenitor of like he foresaw like fake news and shit like uh like coming like in the 80s, right? Like he was looking at the you know before the internet was even a thing, he was just looking at the the emerging kind of like networks of of computer systems and information uh technologies and and already saw a lot of the a lot of what we're dealing with now happening. Uh, you know, he wrote a lot of great uh, essays in the in like in the nineties. But I I really don't know 
where he's at on some of these things now, um, what he's thinking of them. I, I think he's he's enjoying his retirement, a well-earned retirement. <laughs> um, and and uh, he has been in um, for a very long time a professor of science and technology studies at Rinsler Polytechnic Institute, where a friend of the show, David Banks, did his PhD. And we'll, 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 we'll actually be having um, David on for a later chapter uh, to kind of have a discussion with us um, on, a, on a later chapter of the book. But I do also kind of like, like my own personal fears are, uh, you know, it's just like, don't meet your heroes because they're, they're, they might not live up to your expectations, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, um, like I'm almost content to just let my man Winner live in in the amazing work that he's produced, um, and you know, and and not not take the risk that uh, I, I have heard that he's turned into a bit of a. I I think the Trump years made him go a little oh, a little no. crazy. I think he turned into a Cheeto in chief, uh, you know. And, anti-trump guy and, you know we can't fault the trump years for driving us all insane in yeah. different ways all right yeah. <laughs> some of us were able to go insane online and that allows the that allows it to dissipate a little bit you know all your other friends could check on you and see that you started posting to rain shit and be like hey actually that's not okay I'm glad that we've got a podcast, but because previous to doing the podcast, I would just yell all the shit that I usually yell on this podcast at my wife, and she was getting really tired of it. And I lost pretty much all the friends that I had out here because I'm just so negative all the time. But I can't help it. I mean, look at the fucking world we live in. It's a, it's a horrible world. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but may, maybe we'll explore the idea of, of trying to get Winner on to do an interview. We'll see. No Trump stuff. No, tr- no Trump stuff. No lip stuff. No lip stuff. <laughs> we, in our podcast, there is no president. There's only technology. <laughs> that yeah technology is the president <laughs> <laughs> impeach technology man i'm always saying this <laughs> i'm always saying it impeach technology impeach technology make technology yeah. great again you know so there's all, 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 <laughs> all matter right. matter it's matter because we're materialists right So in in chapter one, he also goes through a number of like, you know, these 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 misideas or misunderstandings, these common themes and myths uh, around our understanding of technology. And again, another, you know, another one that a battle we seem to still be fighting today. But, you know, I think if we all just read this book, it would settle a lot of these debates, right? It would settle a lot of these debates and we wouldn't have to constantly keep relitigating the the same arguments over and over. Because, you know, like like take the idea of um, technology is neutral. Right, uh, technology is essentially neutral. It's it's not it, it's it's neither good nor bad. It's just neutral. It's all about the eye of the beholder and the hand of the user. Uh, Winner's work on technological politics, especially uh, he has he has an essay called "Do Artifacts Have Politics," uh, which came out in the in the eighties. And that essay is like. I mean, it's just one of my favorite things ever. It's I, I, I'm hard. I'm hard up to think of one single essay, maybe other than like Deleuze's Society of Control, that has had such a huge influence on my own thinking and theorizing uh, about technology. You know, in chapter one, he really tackles this idea that technology is essentially neutral, right? He says, "quote In the conventional way of thinking, this is page twenty-seven. In the conventional way of thinking, the moral context appropriate to technical matters is entirely clear. Technology is nothing more than a tool. What men do with tools, of course, is to use them. The tool itself is complete." Completely neutral, a means to the desired end. Whether the end accomplished is wise or unwise, beautiful or hideous, beneficial or harmful, must be determined independently of the instrument employed. And he goes on to say that, like, you know, this this idea of technological neutrality um, or the tool use ethic, as he calls it, uh, is this truism that has become a bromide. Right, it's just become this cliche that is repeated ad nauseum, but with no like actual argument. 
about how about why that is the case. People just assert it to be true because I don't know they feel like it's true, but uh, it, it completely erases any kind of understanding of that question of means and ends. All we have is a tool. The means and ends of it are, 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 you know, that's, again, that's not my department. That's not my department. But what if it was? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think also, um, there's, you know, I think it's also really interesting. One thing that I enjoyed of this chapter, too, was bringing in other texts to think about, the, you know, some of the foundations of why it seemed to be that people thought about science and technology in ways that let, that built up to technology as a force that will consume us all, you know. And I think, you know, there's a section where, you know, Winner writes, to what extent do men control technology? If control is understood to mean either the exercise of a dominating influence or holding in restraint, and much of modern literature would find the matter of control at best paradoxical. One now finds persistent depositions given about the following kinds of phenomena. Large-scale systems that appeared to expand by some inherent momentum or growth, weapon systems, freeways, skyscrapers, power, and communications networks, which make the notions of controlled application and reasonable use seem absurd. A continuing and ever-accelerating process of technical innovation in all spheres of life, which brings with it numerous unintended and uncontrolled consequences in nature and society. Technical systems, entirely removed from the possibility of influence through outside direction, which responds only to the requirements of their own internal operations. In other words, the same technologies that have extended men's control over the world are themselves difficult to control. Uh, recognition of this fact is not limited to the critics of the technological society. It extends to the most highly developed sectors of big technology, where the science of cybernetics and an obsession with command and control have been responses to internal difficulties of this sort. Another layer of sophisticated technology was required to enable the manipulation and coordination of networks already in use, as fragility and unpredictability in large-scale systems become facts of modern life. The ultimate success of these measures is still in doubt. Reports of autonomous technology, therefore, are sometimes of the sort. The mechanism does not perform as expected. The slave will not obey. And I, you know, I think that is a, a re really, really, really great sort of distillation of some of the ideas that he's, you know, trying to think think through and 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 get us to think through, right? You know. When we like, are we when we're talking about these large scale technical systems? Are we really, you know, like the way that most people talk about them? It makes no sense to talk about control, as he says, because on the one hand, people in the same breath, people are both saying that, you know, sometimes they fuck up and like you can't help it. You know, sometimes you, uh, your social uh, net media network causes a genocide in a country, and then then at the other time, they're saying like we must preserve this technical system and you cannot break it up because if you broke it up, then our finely tuned control would no longer exist. And it's like, okay, which one do you want? <laughs> you know, what, what is it? What is it? And right. it ends up just usually just being like bullshit, right? That they pick and choose uh, a narrative or, oh, oh, but, and there's a, and there's a slight understanding that they are picking and choosing narratives that suit this idea, even though it's paradoxical. I like that point that he brings in there as well, that like this also paves the way for an excuse to layer even more strata of sophisticated technology one on top of each other, right? Because it's like to correct one mistake, we need a whole other system of technologies there uh, to coordinate and manipulate and control these other technologies that are out of control and that are uncoordinated and that are manipulating us, right? Like it, 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 it again becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you got to fight fire with fire. You got to fight technology with technology. We got to create more and more sophisticated sciences of command and control in order to command and control all of the Frankensteins that we've created that are running around and that are threatening to, to capture us, right? And then, oh, oh no, those technologies we created to command and control those other technologies oh, have no. also gotten <laughs> out of control. Now we have to create, now we have to create another like, layer of technology to come in. It yeah. just goes on and on. Every, and on. Yeah, every single fucking layer. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
are you guys familiar with the six conflicts of fiction? Yeah, you know, mm. like a man versus man, mm. man versus mm. nature, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps this is the seventh conflict that has just uh, just hasn't been like thrown in there. I like to give that. A, That's the new one. Tech, it, it, technology versus technology. That's what it is, right? It, it just uh, it just uh, eliminates the the you know man or people altogether, and the conflict now is just technology versus technology, and we're just all collateral damage. Two giant fucking mechas. It's you know just fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's the fucking it's it's the Jaegers and the Kaiju, and they're just fighting each other. It's Godzilla and King Kong, and they're fighting each other, and 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 that that's the core conflict. Right. So what do we need right. in response? <laughs> Mecha Godzilla. Oh no, Mecha Godzilla is out of control too. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> now we need oh super mecha godzilla to Oh fight no, we mecha need a godzilla. huge mecha to uh, <laughs> capture the mechas and put them in a mecha prison so that the other mechas don't get out. Oh wait, no. Oh we <laughs> <laughs> a mecha prison. <laughs> But then who will watch the mecha? Yeah. I think I've seen that anime. Mecha if, prison. Uh, is it any coincidence that the, the mechas look like prisons? Save that for Crunchyroll after hours. Yeah, I'll show you a Crunchyroll. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, uh, if they let me host it, you know, that would be good. Yeah, but we need to have discourse about the subtitling of the Crunchyroll <laughs> anime. <laughs> to that individual. This is a this is a segue has nothing to do with technology. Well, it kind of does because you can only get that deranged on Twitter. <laughs> what, 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 was, what was the word? What was was it sus? Yes, that triggered triggered this individual. This to person go on, on a absolute madhouse rant. The one of the most. Uh, they started off saying that sus was not a real word and so anime uh, uh, subtitlers were betraying and whatever and and then like in tw in tweet 29 of 42 they're like i'm not actually mad um a lot of people are saying that i'm mad and then five tweets later they're like look i'm not gonna defend the nazis here but and then he's like okay <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> it was such a beautiful example of like of 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 like reddit or twitter thread where it just like immediately started out of nowhere devolving into <laughs> just raging racism, racism. <laughs> unbelievable transphobia unbelievable like we have not seen levels of that much of bigotry like that in a while you know it's amazing it's amazing <laughs> That's why we need. That's why we need te more technology. Because more technology oh, would have filtered that person, right, and filtered them out. That's right. And by more technology, we mean content moderators in the Philippines who are being paid nothing, or in India, right, right? so that we can India. call them you know, anonymous Indian. We're on the topic of technology versus technology. Maybe he would have. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I heard that they make sex dolls now that like uh, argue. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I'm, 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 a, I'm aborting this riff. I'm a abort riff. Abort riff. <laughs> oh man! All right. I, 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 I think on that note, <laughs> like any, like any good book discussion, right after after about an hour, uh, you don't know where it's gonna go. <laughs> So I think on that on that on that great note, uh, <laughs> I think we'll bring to a close this session of the book club, TMK book club meeting number one. You know, we've really laid the groundwork here for a lot more to come, right? Like in in the way that Winner is doing with with these, you know, the intro and chapter one, just laying the groundwork for. Uh, much more analysis, much deeper investigation to build on top of it. You know, many of the things that, and, and many of the things and themes and concepts that we've talked about here are, are going to come back later, um, but in an even uh, more deeper and comprehensive way, right? Like Ed, you know, in that last section that Ed quoted from Winners talking about, you know, the the numerous quote unquote unintended and uncontrolled consequences. Winner has such a great uh just riff in chapter two, um, really kind of picking apart that whole idea 
of unintended consequences, right? Like again, many of m- many of these things uh, that that go on on our own conceptual hit list, uh, and winner just fucking mm-hmm. takes aim and and takes aim and fires at him. So in two weeks' time, uh, we'll be reconvening the TMK Book Club, um, focusing on Chapter Two, Engines of Change. Until then. Hope y'all have enjoyed. Hope y'all dig a little bit deeper into the book and follow along with us. I want to thank you as always for subscribing and listening. And we'll see y'all next week. Later. Adios. Thank you.